Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and verses 12 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume in the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not, they do not have the law. They show that the, law of the, the, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith Welcome to our service today. Thank you so much for joining us online. Thank you for being with us here in our sanctuary, all of you who've come today. It is wonderful to have you worshiping the Lord with us. Before we get into the message today, I'd like to take just a couple of uh, minutes to pray. Pray for our world, pray for our nation, pray for those of you here in our church. I uh, watched a uh, webinar this week done by a global missions organization that's been around for about seven decades. And they were noting uh, that over the decades their ministry has been around, they have seen crises around the world. They've seen uh, famines, they've seen earthquakes, they've seen tsunamis and flooding and political unrest and wars. But typically, 
these things are isolated to one area. They noted how right now this pandemic has affected everybody everywhere, certainly not with the same degree of severity in terms of food shortages and things. But they noted that in the midst of this, they feel there's a great opportunity to pray for a great working of the Holy Spirit around our world. The same is true in our nation. The same is true in our church. So I'd like to ask you to join me now as we pray together. Father, we join our hearts together today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the world in which we live. I especially want to pray for those countries where there is a severe shortage of food. Father, for those who've been affected so terribly in Africa by the invasion of locusts, among other things, would you please bring provision to the people there? Would you please bring relief? Would you open the doors for their needs to, for food to be met? Father, in our own nation, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that where there is loneliness and isolation and anger, that you would turn the hearts of people toward you. And Father, here in our own church, so many are feeling the... Uh, the pain of loneliness and isolation, especially pray for our students and uh, those who have, have felt the separation from friends, those who have felt the uh, oppression of loneliness. Lord, would you encourage them? Would you renew them? Would you strengthen them? Father, for those this morning who are grieving, would you bring hope and love and comfort Father, for those who need their faith rekindled and renewed, would you turn their hearts toward you so that this day, by the time this service ends, we will have grown to know you better and to love you more. And we ask this in your great, great name. Amen. Well, we're continuing today in our study of the great book of Romans. The book of Romans has been called the most basic comprehensive statement of true Christianity. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is laying out a very logical and systematic explanation of what we often refer to as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Romans, as we know it, is a fairly long book by the Apostle Paul. It consists of 16 chapters, but remember when the Apostle Paul originally wrote it, it was one long letter with no chapter divisions. And we're going through the chapters as we study, and each chapter, particularly these early ones, are not going to have a full explanation of the gospel. Paul is preparing the way in these early chapters for his explanation of what Jesus has done. And in these early chapters, he's especially stressing why we need Jesus and what he has done for us. In chapter 1, we saw that every person needs the gospel. The Apostle Paul made it clear that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against human, human sin. For though we, we know God exists, we've not honored him as we ought to have honored him as God. Two of the key verses in the whole book are found in chapter 1. That's when the Apostle Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In other words, 
every person needs the gospel. And he goes on to explain that the gospel is received by faith. Now, as chapter 1 unfolds and we move through chapter 2, the Apostle Paul will begin breaking down self-righteousness. In chapter 1, he does that by breaking down the self-righteousness of people who think that they're, they're, they're okay going about life, living it in their own way, disregarding God. And in chapter 2, he moves to religious people, particularly the Jews whom Paul is addressing, how their self-righteousness is also a barrier to receiving the gospel. He's making the point, I think, that humility, humility is necessary to receive the gospel. No self-righteous person will enter the kingdom of God. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul begins, and again in chapter 2, he's focusing on the religious, particularly the religious Jews, the self-righteous in this case. He's noting that God will judge the, the judgmental. He makes a particularly strong case in Romans chapter 2 against judgmentalism. And he notes that judgment will come to those who rely on their own supposed moral superiority. Now, if you were with us last week, you know in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul laid out a long list of, of sins. And we'd all have to raise our hands and say, I'm guilty of one or more of those. In chapter 2, he begins with these words, therefore, in light of this long list of sins I've just laid out, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The New Testament doesn't give us a very clear list of which sins are worse in the eyes of of God. But if it did, I suspect that the sin of self-righteous judgmentalism would be very high on the list. And I say that because Jesus was so often at odds with self-righteous judgmental people, particularly a group of people known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group in Judaism who put a great emphasis on knowing the law of God, the scriptures of the Old Testament. And that's a good thing to do. But their knowledge made them feel they were superior than others, more holy than others. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated one. They saw themselves as separate, set apart from other people, more holy than others. So in the Gospels, if you read... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus was often at odds with them. And one of his best-known parables is known as the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it goes like this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, 
and tax collectors were despised by many in Jesus' day. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, Jesus said, but he beat his breast and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteous judgmentalism of others typified by the, the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector will keep one from the kingdom of God. And so Paul, who had been a Pharisee himself prior to coming to faith in Jesus, says, you have no excuse, O oh man, when you judge another because you do the same things yourself. You cannot rely on your supposed moral superiority like the the Pharisee did in the parable of Jesus. Secondly, Paul notes God will judge the judgmental who rely on their knowledge of God's law. In chapter 2 and verse 23, he says, you who boast in the law, now think about that for a moment. What kind of person boasts in the law? He's talking about those who have great knowledge of the law of God, great knowledge of the scripture, which is a good thing, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 17, again, Paul is addressing here those who, who were religious people, considered themselves righteous people, those who had the knowledge of God's word. He writes in verse 17, <clears throat> but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. He goes on, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge of scripture, knowledge of God's word. But knowledge should never make us proud. Over the years, and I saw this, I think, when I first went to seminary many years ago, I came to the realization that some people who get a whole lot of theological knowledge don't become more humble, but they become more proud. Proud that they know more than everyone else. And I know this because I saw it first in myself. I can remember when I started going to seminary and studying uh, Greek and, and, and the New Testament interpretation and theology and thinking, wow, this is neat. I understand some things I didn't know. And I go back to, into my small group Bible study in church and think, wow, this is, I, know, I know some things other people don't, don't know. And I remember walking into my little uh, basement office one day and all my theology Books were on the shelf there, all these nice multicolored hardback books. And I looked at that shelf and I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, if somebody walked down and saw that, they'd be pretty impressed. And I can remember standing there in my basement and I, I believe God spoke to me with these words right out of Scripture. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. 
Now, that was a nice, loving rebuke from the Lord. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, knowledge of God is a good thing. Our knowledge of Scripture is a very, very good thing. But if knowledge serves to make us feel that we are somewhat better than everyone else who doesn't have the benefits of having the knowledge that we have, it's not producing in us what it should be producing. We must always pray, we who study and learn the Word of God, that the seed of God's Word is going to fall on good soil in our hearts. In our knowledge of God and His greatness, His omnipotence, His vastness, His holiness should create in us greater humility and not greater pride. Jesus was often addressing this in his ministry, as Paul is in Romans chapter 2. For example, in Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> Jesus was talking about the scribes. Now, in Jesus' time, the scribes were the people who really, really knew the scriptures that we refer to as the Old, Old Testament. They knew the scriptures. In fact, the very word scribe conveys the meaning of learned in the scriptures. And here's what Jesus says in Mark 12 and verse 38. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Wow. They like to be recognized for being religious. They like to get accolades for that and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They pray long and loud so people will think them religious and spiritual. They will receive the greater condemnation. Knowledge, knowledge of God. On one hand, makes some proud and self-righteous, but the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God should, on the other hand, make us humble and create in us a love-motivated obedience to know God better, to love Him more. I, I love the way Pastor David Holcomb in our church talks about the goal of our discipleship, learning God's Word, but that's not all. Loving and living, learning, loving, and living out the truth of God's Word. Knowledge should be transformed in us into to love, love for God, His Word, His will, His way, and that should result in love-motivated obedience, living out His Word. Paul is pronouncing judgment on the religious, those who rely on their supposed moral superiority, their supposed greater knowledge of God's law, and then he also notes God will judge the judgmental who rely on outward expressions of religion. In verse 25 of Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see references to circumcision, old and new. 
um, you'll see references to circumcision a number of times, particularly in the writings of Paul in Romans and Galatians. You may wonder, why, what's, why are people so consumed with this? Well, for the Jews, circumcision was of, of very great importance because it marked them as different and distinct. It was a sign of their covenant with God. It goes back to the Old Testament book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 17, God had called Abraham and he had promised him that through his descendants, all the nations of the world would ultimately be, be blessed. And he said this in Genesis 17 and verse 11, you'll see the verse on the screen. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, all the males amongst the Israelites were to be circumcised, and uh, there was great pride in being of the circumcised ones. In fact, by Jesus' time, uh, there was a known saying amongst rabbis that went like this, no person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. That is hell. Nobody circumcised will go to hell. So, you want to be, be circumcised, so you don't go to hell. Now Paul, the book of Romans, laying out a logical, systematic understanding of the gospel, is breaking down religious pride. And he's breaking down reliance upon outward signs rather than inward heart change which the gospel brings about. And he uses Abraham as an example. And notice what he says in Romans chapter 4. He, that is Abraham, received the sign, that's a key word, sign of circumcision, is a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And here's Paul's point. Abraham was deemed righteous by God, considered forgiven, considered right, redeemed. We might use the word saved. Place in God's kingdom. But he had that not by circumcision. He had it while he was still uncircumcised. He had it by faith. And Paul is going to make the point that it's faith in Jesus that saves a person, not the outward sign. And the purpose, he says, was to make Abraham the father of all who believe. That is the forerunner, the predecessor, the first one of all who believe without being circumcised, non-Jews, like most of us, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Paul's point here is that faith in Christ is the key, not the sign. What the rabbis should have been saying at this time was that no person who has by faith received the Messiah will go down to Gehenna. No person who by faith has received Jesus will go down to hell. Now, this whole talk of signs and, and seals may raise a question in your mind because some of those of you who've been at church here, you know, sometimes we'll talk about um, the Lord's Supper or, or baptism. Uh, you'll read this in our bulletin perhaps or in the rock update and you'll see language like this, signs or seals. So I want to talk about that just, just for a moment as a little aside here. 
A sacrament is, is defined as a, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And for us, those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. But I just want to remind you that those sacrament, these holy things, they're things Jesus has called us to do. They're signs of the work he does internally. They're outward signs. They don't bring about our salvation. Our salvation is by faith in Jesus. For example, baptism. You see people baptized with water. Baptism signifies the washing away of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper, we take the bread or we take the juice, that signifies something. It's a sign of receiving the benefits of the, the body of Jesus given on the cross, the shedding of his blood. Both are very important because Jesus commanded us to observe them. Both are important, neither saves. They signify what Jesus has done for us. They don't take the place of what he's done for us. So example, for example, let's, let's suppose today that you, watching our service here in our sanctuary, that today is the day you realize you need to really place your trust in Jesus for your salvation. You're not sure you've done that before, but today you know that's what you need to do, and you do that. At the end of our service, you pray and you, you put your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. That's what makes you a believer. But suppose before you have a chance to ever take the Lord's Supper or even be baptized, you die. You would be in heaven because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not the sign that saves is the faith in the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul is breaking down the self-righteousness of those who felt they were righteous because they had been circumcised. They had the sign, but not the heart transformation. And then Paul is going to talk about the fact that those who will be saved from judgment are those whose hearts have been transformed. Yes, there's a circumcision, but it's not the outward bodily one. It's the circumcision by the Holy Spirit. And now he uses language that is uh, unusual, especially if we're not familiar with all of this talk about circumcision. But here's what he says as he sums up this chapter, chapter 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. It's not these outward signs that do it. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from man, but from God. Religious people tend to gravitate toward externals. What we do, what we have done. But God sees the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Scripture says. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees the heart. And a true child of God is one whose heart has been made new by the Holy Spirit. This can't be done by doing a lot of religious things. Can't be done just by joining the church or taking the sign 
outward signs are important because they bear witness to an inward change. And the inward change comes when we place our faith in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. By faith we receive him. And those who will be saved from judgment, Paul notes in this chapter, are those for whom the judge is the Savior. You'll see this on the screen before you in verse 16, where Paul says something that it sounds a little unusual to our ears. He says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's he talking about here? I think he's talking about what is sometimes referred to as the day of judgment. It's mentioned frequently in Scripture uh, when Christ returns. Paul writes elsewhere, we, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And frankly, we think about having the secrets of our heart exposed. That's, that's not, a very, <laughs> not a very comforting thing. So I don't know about you, but many things have been in my heart that I'd rather not have exposed. But I breathe a sigh of relief when I read what Jesus said about judgment when he returns. In John chapter 5 and verses 22 to 24, we read these words that Jesus spoke. He said, For the Father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the Son to Christ, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The great truth of the gospel of Jesus is that the one who is the great judge and who will be the great judge has condescended and humbled himself to become the great Savior. We have an accuser who is Satan, but we have a great advocate who is Jesus. He's also our great judge. The judge is the one who paid the penalty for me and for you. If you've put your faith in him, the one who took your place, so that the Apostle Paul can write some of the most beautiful words in the Bible when he gets to Romans chapter 8 as he's continuing to lay out this logical uh, explanation of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The great judge has become the great savior. And may God always be praised for that. Now, as we stand back and look at Romans chapter 2, again, what the Apostle Paul's doing, he's breaking down religious pride, trust in outward things, trust in supposed moral superiority. He is breaking down the judgmental because judgmentalism has no place in the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And so as we reflect on this chapter, I'd like to raise just two questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. Am I harboring an attitude of judgmentalism toward anyone? Judgmentalism is often expressed in anger toward people with whom we disagree. And it's, it, it, it's just a terribly sad thing that right now in our time, it has been so prevalent by so many who profess faith in Jesus. The other day, my wife Beth um, she, she's on social media a good bit. I'm not. And, and she was looking at her phone, and I saw her just shaking her head. She said, I can't believe that. And I thought, okay, well, what is it? And, and she mentioned someone, no one in our church. It, don't worry, I never use examples of people in our church. Someone who, 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 who's a, a Christian, certainly professed to be a Christian, who had posted something so sarcastic and condescending uh, a, a political type thing uh, toward anybody who disagrees with me, haughty, arrogant, judgmental, angry. And then the next post, come join us at our church this Sunday. <laughs> oh my goodness. I hope nobody in our church is doing stuff like that. That type of judgmentalism, how can that have, have any place in someone in whom is the Holy Spirit of God? Remember the one we serve, the one we follow, the one who gave his life for us? Remember what he said? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Well, don't I have a right to political opinion? Of course. I'm glad Christians are engaged in political things. I wish we had more Christians engaged in politics who really lived like Christians and honored Christ and held to his word and walked in humility and love for others. Yes, it's good and important. There are important things there. What I'm saying is that a Christian has no place being sarcastic, mean, condescending, harsh toward others. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. If you're angry at someone with whom you disagree, don't publicly blast them. Pray for them. Pray God change their heart. Pray God do something in your heart toward them. Bless those who curse you. Judgmentalism. No place in the life of a believer haughty, arrogant attitude. Our knowledge of God should make us more humble, more like Christ, more like Jesus. Number two, have I really experienced the inner, renewing, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? The message of the gospel is this, as Paul would write later in the book of Titus. It is not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration refers to being born again, reborn. In the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, 
You got to be reborn to see the kingdom of God regenerated. This comes about by the Holy Spirit, recognizing our sin, humbling ourselves before God, transferring our trust from what we've done wholly to what Jesus did for us, resting upon him entirely for our salvation. It's not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for that. Would you join me as we pray? Father, how we thank you that the great judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, has become the great Savior who gave his life for us. We will always praise you for this, Lord. And I pray for any watching our service, any here in our sanctuary who have never truly embraced the salvation of Jesus, that today, Lord, you would draw that person to say, Dear God, I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Forgive me. Save me. Jesus, be my Lord. Father, where we have had attitudes of haughtiness, arrogance, anger, harshness, meanness, forgive us. Make us a body of people who are known by our love for you and our love for one another. Make us a body of people who are known by our kindness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, by goodness to others by our care and compassion, even for those with whom we disagree. Let your Holy Spirit so fill us that the love of Christ is poured in our hearts by his holy presence. And we ask this in your great, great name. Amen.